Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. This is part two of a conversation I'm having with Dean Emily Towns of Vanderbilt University Divinity School, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary, and Associate Dean Karen Massey at Mercer University McAfee School of Theology about the state of theological education. We are having this conversation using former Yale Divinity School Dean Willie James Jennings' book published last year entitled After Whiteness and Education and Belonging as a reference. In his book, Dr. Jennings reinitiates a substantive conversation about the inadequacies of theological education, which began in the early 1980s. He also renews the critique of the Mudflower Collective's book, God's Fierce Whimsy, which says that the inadequacies in theological education are rooted in the distortion caused to it by the continuing legacy of colonial imperialism and white male supremacy. In the last episode, part one of the conversation, my guests told of their own experiences in receiving a theological education and coming to assume responsibility for an institution of theological education. They also gave their own assessment of the state of theological education. In this episode, part two of the conversation, my guests described for us how theological education is being done where they each are, what the challenges they face are, and the perception of the future of theological education they each have. So welcome back. Let's begin by shifting our conversation to what's happening in each of your schools. When education changes to make corrections or transformation, uh, it still has to take some kind of practical form. You know, when a student comes to you, enters your program, even if there are multiple pathways, uh, it still has to have some kind of design to the curriculum. So what is that? What is happening as far as curricular design in each of your schools? Emily? Um, now, six years ago, um, we began um, what I call the curriculum transformation process. And I dubbed it transformation because our curriculum at that time uh, had not been seriously um, reviewed, updated, whatnot, since the mid-1980s. So it meant not just a tinkering, not just um, a renew or a review, um, we needed to transform ourselves. We needed to move into the 21st century um, and be able to respond to what we were seeing in the world around us, the talents and gifts of the faculty um, in order to teach it, what our students were saying and doing uh, once they left us, um, what um, interested parties in the school were asking for, local churches, seminary, uh, um, mosques, and synagogues. Um, and so what we did was we made two major changes. We developed um, concentrations, there are 10 of them, 
um, and they run from the more traditional pastoral and prophetic ministry to um, uh, religion and the arts to spirituality and social activism, uh, gender and religion, economics and religion, Mediterranean studies, um, black church and culture, uh, and several others. And all of them, um, prison and carceral studies, all of them were things that our students were saying they needed um, before they left to get a grounding in. Um, and then the second thing we did was create um, a sort of omnibus course where all masters, entering master students um, had to take it. It's a team taught course, it's called Foundations in Ministry. We all have had versions of this. Um, and we're now at the point of okay, we've been doing this for three years, what do we need to be doing? Um, but the idea is, is to give students a foundation for their studies, something that they can hang the other classes they're taking or will be taking, uh, they can hang up their hats and have some sense of what it means to be engaged in that kind of reflection and dialogue. Um, the centerpiece of our curriculum, I would argue, is field education. Um, for us, it's not an add-on or you just have to take it or it's a good thing to have around. It interacts deeply with not only the foundations course, but the um, uh, Theology 1 course, Hebrew Bible intro, New Testament intro. Um, and the faculties collaborate to help students um, sort of walk through those, those courses in light of what they're learning in their ministry settings. And the ministry settings run the gamut from a local church to um, recently um, we had opened the African-American um, Music Hall of Fame in Nashville, and we're looking to place somebody there in a field setting um, in ministry. So we're trying to think large uh, and grow large and to understand that field ed is a theological enterprise. We want theological thinkers in the work of ministry. So those are some of the things that we're doing these days. Kelly? Yes, thanks for uh, this question, uh, David. I think uh, I'll talk about it in broad strokes as opposed to uh, really looking at or talking about some of curriculum uh, requirements and uh, areas, if you will. Uh, because as you know, first of all, EDS Union uh, is affiliated uh, with Union, and that is that uh, the Episcopal Divinity School of moved down from Cambridge and became an affiliate partner uh, with Union Theological Seminary. So in essence, our students are first and foremost Union students. And then uh, EDS provides for the students the kind of Anglican studies programming uh, 
that they will need as they move into whatever uh, the nature of their ministerial call is, meaning be it ordained, lay, uh, et cetera. And so uh, we'll perhaps say something about that uh, later on in terms of sort of the future, I think, of what we need to be thinking about in terms of uh, seminary training, et cetera, in terms of those kind of affiliations. But to your question, uh, in terms of uh, our curriculum or how we see theological training uh, and the vision uh, that we had uh, as we began to develop uh, this new, uh, if you will, uh, manifestation of EDS. And so one of the things that became very important beyond simply the uh, requirements that one would need in an Anglican studies program if they were to be ordained and pass what we call our general ordination exams, but it, what became very significant to us was that we began to help the students to be prepared, not simply for the world as it is, but also to be able to sort of hold themselves accountable or be prepared for shaping the world, shaping the society uh, in the way in which it ought to be. Because after all, as uh, said before, that as faith leaders, we're training faith leaders who are to be accountable, not to present unjust realities or even uh, the uh, vision of uh, what justice may look like, but uh, uh, from our sort of human, if you will, uh, perspective or societal perspective would be a better way to say that, but are to be accountable to a more God's more just future that we're called to. So how do we how do we train students uh, for that kind of dialectic? Yet training them to as well be responsive to the needs uh, of 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 their communities today. So what was important for us was one within our curriculum to be able to lift up the story that has not been told in so many ways. And so that our students are engaging the various aspects of Anglican studies with also an eye on those who have been, if you will, on the underside of justice, but on the underside of the Anglican story. And so we bring both of those together so that in our uh, Anglican missionary course, uh, we aren't simply, we're talking about those people who quote unquote got missionized, those people who, you know, when they, as as uh, Bishop Tutu and others have said, when the missionaries came, they had, the people had the land and the missionaries had the Bible. By the time the missionaries left, uh, uh, they had the land and the people had the Bible. We want, <laughs> we want to tell it from the, the side of the people who were left with the Bible in a particular uh, rendering and interpretation of that Bible that oftentimes, obviously, and of course they resisted. So we are intentional in that kind of dialectic engagement of trying to engage the full story that is the Anglican tradition, always bearing in mind, and this is a sort of a model that we went in with in developing the curriculum, that Anglican is not synonymous with Anglo. And if we understand the 
global Anglican community, then we are actually understanding the uh, uh, diversity of God's very creation. So the, the other thing that we've done in our curriculum is also to make sure this is uh, our country and this is why our country is where it is now, I think in so many respects with white supremacy rearing its head, uh, holding on as much as it can because of the changing demographic in our country. And uh, our country will, of course, be a, as they say, a minority majority country, but, uh, and a large demographic of uh, that or population will be Latinx. And so we uh, are making sure that our students are in some ways have a competency in Spanish, at least liturgical and pastoral Spanish, and that they are required to take a course in Latinx ministries and, and culture. And so curricularly, we're doing those kinds of things, but we also believe that proximity matters so that our students are required to take part in immersion uh, programs or shadowing experiences that take beyond field ed. Field ed is central to the curriculum. This is beyond field ed and uh, immersion experiences or shadowing experiences that bring them proximate to the very people who are on the underside in their struggles. So for instance, uh, pre-pandemic, our last immersion experience was down at the El Paso Juarez border where our students uh, worked for uh, 10 days or so in a, in a border awareness program there and they lived with the uh, immigrants that were coming in as well as worked and then uh, did work on both sides, if you will, uh, of the border. They've had an emergent experience uh, with the civil rights uh, project, et cetera, in, in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and et cetera. So proximity matters. Let me say one word about field ed. Unless their bishops indicate otherwise, we also require that they have a field act experience in an ethnic cultural context that is not their own. Uh, so all of these ways, so we have three, and all of this is grounded in a spiritual and theological foundation. So we have three large components, the curriculum, co-curricular, where we bring in people in conversations, and a part of that is the immersion experience, uh, a annual book read, uh, where we try to focus on social justice issues as uh, well as the spiritual formation that is worship that they have to engage in, morning prayer of uh, four days a week and Eucharist, but we also try to help them to understand uh, the relationship between liturgy, liturgy is work, right? Liturgy and the work of uh, what it means to be uh, faith leaders in a world that must be not simply better, but transformed. And so we try to engage them in transformative and transforming ministries and prepare them for that. Karen? In terms of curriculum design, I think two things have happened at McAfee in the last several years. And it, of course, has been in those two things have been influenced by changes in um, society. Um, first thing is this. Um, we have people who are um, at McAfee who are older. The, uh, the, the average age of people at McAfee are now older um, rather than being right out of college. 
They are folks who are um, second career folks and who are looking for um, a, a new career after having been in the workplace for a while. Or they may be folks that are already in a ministry position in their churches, but they never got a seminary degree. Um, so they're all coming back um, or, or looking for a seminary degree now. So we're having to meet a lot of their needs, which means shorter degree time. So I, we had to reduce our MDiv from a 90-hour degree down to 74 so that people could complete it in a shorter amount of time. People are also needing more online work. So we developed online degrees so that people could go to school and do work and take care of their families at the same time. So all of those kinds of things have impacted the way we do education. So basically it's more online. Our curriculum is more online now and it um, is um, um, more able, it is able to be completed in a shorter amount of time. So that's one thing. The second thing is diversity has emphatically um, impacted our curriculum and what it looks like. For instance, um, we reevaluated all of our syllabi, and one of the things we noticed was that it was our syllabi was not very diverse in terms of the textbook requirements, reading requirements, um, our teaching methodology, um, guest speakers we included. So we had to, we went back through and um, reevaluated all of our syllabi, and and so now it is a requirement that the text must represent theological, racial, and gender diversity. Um, the methodology that we use must pay attention to different learning styles and um, the way people best express themselves. For instance, we have a lot more students now who come out of the sciences rather, rather than the liberal arts degrees. And so people who come out of the sciences rarely had to write. So they do better in terms of projects, um, um, or, you know, researching that kind of stuff as opposed to writing. So in some of our courses, we um, give students options. You can write a paper or you can do a project that um, uses your gifts much better, um, wh whichever one um, uses your gifts much better. Um, so um, we've also developed um, a diversity and inclusion committee that makes sure that we are paying attention to diversity whether it is in our worship, whether it is in our classrooms, whether it is in just the way we relate to one another in community, whether it has to do with our faculty makeup, et cetera. But we have a diversity inclusion committee that is made up of students and faculty and staff. We also have a director now of inclusion and diversity at McAfee, um, I mean at Mercer, um, who pays attention to that on the bigger university scale. And we give feedback and input to that um, director. Um, we're also working on grants from Wabash that have to do with diversity and um, um, in the ways in which we build community here in this place at McAfee. And then um, we are also finding ways that we can reach out to um, not just the churches, our founding churches that give us money on a regular basis, but churches that send us their students. Um, and those include a wide variety of theological and racial diversity as well. So we're trying to find ways to reach out to them and make them feel part of supporting an institution that then in, in turn sends ministers back to them. So it's changed in a lot of ways. Um, but the two major ways is just um, older um, students who are older and students who are more, more diverse. And that has impacted us greatly.
Well, Emily, kind of as a follow-up on your discussion about uh, curriculum uh, and the changes you all have made, uh, you are the dean of Vanderbilt where uh, Edward Farley was. And since his was the first voice uh, in the conversation back in the 80s that I made mention of in my introduction, uh, what kind of impact did his two books have upon Vanderbilt's curriculum? Well, the, the curriculum was really, um, up until four years ago, it was modeled after um, Ed's work, um, which is both good and bad. I think at the time that his works came out, he really had his uh, finger on um, the ins and outs of theological education in a powerful way, and also in a way that would encourage it to continue to transform itself so that it would meet the needs of the next generation. But um, when you sit in 20, uh, let's see, 2016, 17, uh, and you think of mid-1980s, and you're still doing the ideas from the mid-1980s in contemporary times, we started to notice there were some things that were missing, uh, things that needed to be updated. And even Ed himself, before he died, said that on several points he thought he was wrong and that um, he was hoping that um, folks would take on those blind spots he now saw um, and really move in more contemporary ways to meet the needs of students coming in with very different questions. When I think of my students now, and what they come through the door asking about um, what they don't know, um, what they do know, it doesn't look very much like the mid 1970s when I first started this journey. Um, and we need to respect that. We need to respect the fact that um, if we take seriously, which I do, that God's revelation is ongoing, then so should theological education. We need to be um, in step with the changing ways that God speaks to us in different eras, in different ways, sometimes different people. Um, but what Ed was able to lay out um, gave gave some language, some helpful language, I think, to what schools were doing. And um, in many ways, I think, uh, particularly for a school like um, Vanderbilt that's embedded in a Research One university in very helpful ways. There have been slews of reports based on numerous research projects uh, that indicate that Christianity has declined significantly over the past several decades in the United States and Europe. And I know that I've observed and experienced that decline and the impact of it, uh, both as a college and seminary professor myself, but especially as a pastor for the first 13 years of this millennium. So 
Has the decline affected you all, and in what way? Emily? Well, you know, it's it's hard to say. Um, because I, I want to make a distinction between um, the decline of organized Christianity and the decline of religion uh, in the United States. Organized Christianity, yes, denominations are losing their memberships, even the ones that um, used to sort of be, uh, to my mind, a little arrogant about the size of their denominations. They too are beginning to see um, a decline. My question is why? And I think some of it has to do with the ways in which some denominations um, are more, um, more likely to say who cannot be a member of the fellowship than who can, and that turns younger generations off. Um, but it also, I think, reflects some of the individualism that has been growing in the United States since, since the 1980s, the early 1980s. Um, and this kind of religion, uh, individualism, I call rampant individualism. It, um, it's a me and mine sort of individualism that doesn't take into account communities or groups. And what I see happening with some of the, the younger generation is they have been shaped by this rampant individualism and now they're finding it wanting. It is not meeting their spiritual needs. It's not meeting their social needs and it's not meeting their religious needs. And so they turn away from the very thing that is sort of perpetuating this for whatever reason. But what I also see happening is this incredible interest in um, spirituality and meaning making, um, perhaps not within the walls of churches, but maybe in small groups, um, perhaps even folks finding new ways to become hermits, um, which um, sort of runs counter to much of who we are these days. But that's going on as well. When you've got this much change going on in society, in the churches that often feed seminaries, um, and in people's own individual journeys, it's going to have an effect on seminaries um, because we are the beneficiaries of those looking for a place to come and answer those questions they have that are very much deeply spiritually formed or we give them one of the credentials they need in order to be ordained by a certain denomination. Well, if that denomination is in decline, people are starting to wonder well, what are other ways that I can be in ministry? But they don't walk away from their faith. They walk away from practices that no longer feed their faith. 
So the challenge for me, I think, for any theological school, and, and certainly for Vanderbilt, is are we being relevant to the questions that folks are bringing? Um, the kinds of ways in which they are trying to make meaning in life with a sense of it's bigger. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than my family. It's bigger than my community. What it takes for us to be true church or true people of faith means having to set some, some um, unhel unhelpful sense of self aside and to walk into what it means to grow in a community with all the pushes and pulls of that and knowing it's not perfect. My goodness, communities are far from perfect, but they help us, I think, tap into something. So how then do we as a school uh, reach into that with, with, a, with a fairly certain sense that it's important to think theologically and to learn how to think theologically. But it's also important to blend that with experience and being in community with others. Kelly? Yeah. One, I think the uh, national, quote unquote, national decline of, of Christianity uh it's again it is a challenge because it's holding us uh calling us to account uh and what it means is that uh we who claim to be christian and christian faith communities have not lived into uh that call and that uh means something in terms of uh seminary education because it calls us to an uh, account as well. And we've got to, as I've just said, prepare students to in fact understand and live into what it means uh, to be faith leaders. But in terms of, uh, and I'm hearing this question in terms of sort of the students or not, who are coming or not coming uh, to seminary, again, in terms of the EDS program, uh, in fact, it's it's thriving uh, in in this regard, uh, even with Episcopalians, but <laughs> who are probably more in decline than the wider uh, Christian community. Uh, and I always say to my church, "Well, if you start being church, that may not be a problem." Uh, and so, uh, you know, I say, "Let's not preach Jesus. Let's do Jesus, and maybe everything be okay." Uh, uh, so, but what we have found really is that on the one hand, we're thriving uh, in terms of our cohort because students and people who are looking to engage in ministry, be it lay or ordained, are really in fact concerned uh, with issues of justice and social justice. And, uh, and not simply, they aren't coming as simply uh, social workers or political activists, et cetera, 
uh, that are concerned with the same thing, but they are concerned as they see it as a part of their spiritual being and trying to make that connection. And so in this regard, as uh, I think Emily said earlier, that you've got to listen to the people and listen to the students and listen. The reason that Christianity is declining is because it is not in that dialogue with the uh, world in such a way that it is relevant to the needs of the people who are really on the underside of our world. And so uh, in developing our programming, we're trying to do that. Uh, and meet in meeting those needs, we're, we're hopefully getting on that arc that bends toward justice to help our students uh, develop ministries that get, get on the arc and that sort of bend the arc uh, uh, a little more, uh, the justice arc a little more toward earth. Karen? Yes. Um, first and foremost, um, it has just, we've seen a decline numerically in the number of students who are going to seminary. Um, so that that's had an impact on us. Just our numbers have declined. But then the second way that that has um, impacted us is um, fewer and fewer and fewer students are coming to seminary wanting to go into church ministry. Um, students who come to seminary now are um, more uh, more so want to go into things like counseling or chaplaincy or nonprofit social work, um, even some type of missions, but we have seen a massive decline in the number of students who want to go into church ministry and particularly those wanting to go into the role of pastor. Um, and how that's kind of sort of created um, not a, a conflict, but um, um, the word's not conflict, but, but in terms of working with our churches and constituency, you know, they'll call us all the time saying, we're looking for a youth minister. Can you send us some names? And we don't have any. Or there are churches who will call and say, we're, we're looking for a pastor. Can you give us some names of your graduates? And we won't have any. Um, so, yeah, numerically and then just in folk, in students who um, are wanting to go into church ministry has greatly declined as well. So how has the pandemic affected each of your schools during this time, especially because all of you uh, spoke about how integral field education was? to your programs. Emily? Well, it's interesting. Our field education, I think we have the best field education uh, program in the country. Um, and uh, I don't say that lightly. I, I really do believe that. And one of the reasons why is that it is, um, it centers itself on helping students learn how to think ministry theologically and not just experientially. They want to combine those two things. Our field education director, um, Vicki Madsen, uh, saw the pandemic coming and developed a whole um, um, methodology for someone to do field education, not on site. But what, and, and some did have to take advantage of that. But what she found, what we found, 
is that most of the supervisors integrated the field education students to the online ministry they were conducting. So students got a firsthand look at one, how do you shift from something so deeply interpersonal face-to-face to trying to figure out what is deeply interper- interpersonal, but online. And that's a different kind of question than simply going online, but wanting to know, not being satisfied with, well, we just have to give up on the, the touchy-feely stuff we do um, when we're able to see one another. And so pastors were very um, clear that they were not willing to settle for that. And so they invited our students to join them on that. So we actually did not lose any sites, as far as I'm aware of. Um, And um, we have even new field ed supervisors coming on board in the fall. So I I think we made it through. Okay. Kelly? So, yeah, and in terms of um, the lessons from the pandemic, I think we do have to begin to rethink, of course, theological education and the ways in which both Emily and I think have spoken about. And we also have to rethink, we're not simply rethinking it curricularly and how we train those who come within the walls, but we have to make theological discourse more accessible to people. And, you know, people are are concerned and have that religious question, is there more to life than this? And are thinking through sort of their own sense of spirituality, their own, what that means for who they are in the world. Uh, A lot of people are thinking about that, that don't come to seminary, can't afford to come to seminary, don't want to come to seminary for a variety of reasons. But so we have a responsibility to engage beyond our walls and to make this theological discussion and discourse accessible. Not only responsibility because there are people who don't have the privilege to, or co- to come and for whatever reason aren't, uh, aren't uh, coming to seminaries and for uh, reasons beyond just not having the privilege, that's not what they wanna do, but also we have to make theological discourse accessible and uh, available on the public square because we have a responsibility to try to help to expand the moral imaginary of the nation so that we can all begin to think in different ways about the meaning of justice. And so one of the things that has occurred during the pandemic uh, is that this was always our commitment and we moved remotely and we at EDS at Union Uh, began to engage uh, a series called Just Conversations. And at first they were conversations about what does it mean to be church in the time of COVID? Then what does it mean to be church in the time of two pandemics, of course, white supremacy and COVID? But we have, and the response was tremendous. And we engaged uh, faith leaders as well as social political leaders and other activists and scholars. And so we've maintained that. Uh, and developed a series of just conversations on Facebook Live that have 
been uh, proven themselves very popular because they are able to engage a wider public in theological discourse. We've also developed uh, what Union has always had SU courses, supplemental uh, unit courses uh, in which people are able to do continuing education or other things in sort of a 13 hour weekend model uh, where they would come on campus and uh, take a course uh, over a weekend. Uh, we put that online at uh, uh, EDS and Union. And so we offer at least one each semester. In fact, I offer that. So we did one on James Cone's Black Theology and Black Power in the fall, then on Pauli Murray in the spring that were tremendously popular. People actually from across uh, uh, the world, really, because be, uh, there were people that were uh, from Canada, et cetera, who took part in this course uh, and actually on a weekend were part of a course for 13 hours on, on a weekend. There's a hunger for theological discourse. There's a hunger for this kind of moral thinking uh, and beyond uh, the seminary walls. It's our responsibility, if as seminaries we are seedbed for God's more just future, it's our responsibility to, in some way, respond to that hunger that is the hunger, really, uh, for justice and what that means uh, at, for people who uh, take seriously what it means to uh, be spiritually and religiously grounded. So the COVID pandemic uh, has in so many ways helped us to understand even more and broaden uh, our uh, audience, if you will, but at, at least uh, live more fully, I guess is the way in which I should say it, into uh, our commitment as faith leaders and as uh, a seminary. Karen? Yes. Um, yes, so just because you mentioned it, yes, field, field work is a requirement of our curriculum. So this past year, um, we couldn't send students out to the field um, because churches would not allow them or nonprofits would not allow them, et cetera. And so we had to do a lot of online work, um, just allowing students to work with a mentor online and ask questions of a mentor. So this year, it ended up being more of a mentor dialogue conversation kind of relationship rather than actual hands-on doing ministry in a context. Um, and our students missed out on a lot. They said they did and we know they did. Um, but yeah, that had a major impact on field ed um, this past year. Um, COVID also caused us to have to figure out how to do online education better. Um, at McAfee, we have screamed and yelled for years about not wanting to do online classes because we're of the belief that, you know, how can you do ministry like preaching or pastoral care um, online? Well, we had to figure it out. And you know what? Actually, you can do it. Um, it may seem a little bit far-fetched, but you can actually do it. So we had to learn new ways of doing um, ministry, practicing ministry and doing it online. Um, also, we had to learn how to figure out how to build community online. You know, when we would have chapel together in the auditorium and, you know, we would meet for face-to-face -face classes or we would have after-class fellowships together, we couldn't do that anymore. So we had to figure out how to create fellowship online 
um, and and trying to think differently, particularly theologically, about what does it mean to be in community? And and that verse about whenever two or three are gathered, what does that mean? And and can the two or three be gathered online? And how do you create community that way? So um, so yeah, we had to we had to recreate in a year's time actually how we do ministry and how we practice ministry and how we um, do community and fellowship together. Um, so at the end of his book, Jennings doesn't offer his own practical proposal as an example of what an education and belonging that corrects and moves beyond the distortion of colonial imperialism and white male supremacy might look like. Instead, he says, the most crucial step would be for you to imagine new conversations that open up shared exploration into the desire for communion that is intended to vivify theological education. Talking together, then, matters more than we often realize to bringing our hope into focus. This, finally, is the goal of this book and the task I want to leave with you, to bring hope into focus. So, building on what you, Emily, uh, said at the beginning of our conversation in part one about needing to focus upon what is next, as our final question, what conversations do each of you believe we need to continue having about theological education as we move forward? Emily? I think we've got to figure out a way to talk with each other and listen to each other about how faith needs to show up in public, in the debates of the day, in the ways that people and in the places that people um, find their, their deepest questions coming from. And I'm not sure that we have quite figured out how to do that yet. Um, but that next is um, very much a drive towards relevancy. Um, are we speaking the language that people need to hear? Not to make them, not in an echo chamber, but in a language that remains both pastoral and prophetic in the lives of people as they go about their everyday. So that's one part of the next. I think we're going to have to um, begin to think through who will we be as a school if, in fact, the United Methodists split. Um, the Episcopalians have already done so, the Presbyterians as well. But who will we be, even though we are not a denominational school? we still um, educate people in those denominations. Um, how will we do that in a way that helps them learn the ropes of their denomination? But we're also, just by the fact that, I think last year we had 26 different uh, faith expressions in our student body. People are already learning together through differences. Um, how do we take that now once they leave? How do they take, take that now once they leave the school and are faced with it 
in the world where they are now working. Um, how do we help prepare people for a multi-faith world? And not try to do um, later day versions of missionizing instead of listening with one another and to one another and, and, and to understand that there is a big world out there. Um, it's called creation. And there God sits in the midst of it. Um, how are we being a welcoming and faithful presence to God in the world today? Kelly? Yeah, what's next? Uh, it's a um it's a good question. I you know, I think that um just as there's a reckoning, if you will, uh in our country that is in so many ways, while it is about while it is a reckoning in terms of racial injustice, a reckoning in terms of uh white supremacy and the truth of uh, our nation's story. The reckoning is really a reckoning with the soul of our nation. And in that regard, uh, it is a time of reckoning for the church and a time of reckoning for theological education because we are supposed to be people who uh, are respond to the vision, if you will, of our soul and the call of our soul. And so I think one of the first things that uh, we have to do as theological educators is to reflect on indeed who we are and what our purpose is, uh, what it means to respond to the call of our soul. I think that, you know, in this regard, Willie Jennings is, is right. He's right in more ways than one, but uh, he's uh, very much right in that we've adopted a, a model of theological education that has not much to do with the theological. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, you know, we've let, if we use Tertullian's uh, question, what does uh, Athens have to do with uh, Jerusalem, et cetera, we've let Athens rule. And it's time that we get back to the soul of who we are and ask the question, then what does that look like to prepare students who are going to go into some form of ministry to respond to what's supposed to be next for our world and for our society? And I think that's a question we have to reckon with and hold ourselves accountable to. And I dare say it will change the model of how we think curricularly about theological education and should be driven not by Athens and the legacy of Athens, which is the legacy of the enlightenment and all of those things uh, that Willie Jennings uh, spoke about. I tell you this, if we don't, uh, we become irrelevant. Uh, and uh, which means when we become irrelevant, that we have really lost sight 
of the soul of who we are and what we're called to be. And, and it's supposed to be about helping people to understand more fully that whichever it is, they what we call God, uh, what that means uh, in relationship to who they are in the world. And so that's in broad strokes, but, but, but I think it's a serious and urgent question and that we need to begin to rethink the model of theological education. Karen? Um, first, I think conversations about diversity must continue because as um, at least several people have said this and know this, but I just recently read a book by Daniel Elshire and in it he commented about how in um, the next five years in theological education, um, most theology schools will be um, people of color. And so if the majority of the students in our seminaries and, and divinity schools are going to be people of color, then we've got to continue talking about diversity and what that looks like. Um, and and for the first time in, in, in all the years that McAfee's been in existence, we had more um, LGBTQ plus persons um, in our community as well. So we got to talk about what does that mean? Um, and, and, and also even the thing of women, um, it, that's still an issue. So in, in terms of diversity and all of its many manifestations, we've got to continue talking about that and how do we train ministers um, and welcome and include in terms of whatever it is we do in our, in our schools of theology, et cetera. So that's one conversation we've got to keep having. For me, in my context, a conversation that we have to keep having, having is how does the academy and the church continue to relate to each other? Um, because we all know that the academy is always, you know, steps ahead of where the church is. And so one of the conflicts that we've run into in recent years is recognizing that when we put students in ministry places, um, they are far ahead theologically um, um, in, in um, philosophically and in their worldview and on and on and on than where the church is. And so that's created some tension and conflict there. And so we need to find more ways to get the church and the um, academic institutions connected, talking, working together. And I don't know what that looks like yet for the future, but we've got to find ways to continue doing that. Another conversation that we have to have is for theological education and for seminaries to survive. We've got to help our churches once again begin raising up and calling forth future ministers. You know, when I was coming along, that's how I heard the call to ministry is because my church nurtured me and told me to listen for God's voice. Well, in the last decade or so, churches have stopped doing that. And so they're not sending us those future ministers that they have cultivated um, any longer. And for us to survive and for the church to survive, we've got to find out how to regain and redo um, um, that, that type of nurturing and training up of future ministers. Well, you all have given us wonderfully helpful insights and much to continue thinking about. I am deeply grateful to each of you for who you are, for the voice that you provide, and for the work that you're doing. 
Thank you for being with me in this conversation and blessings to you and to what you do. Thank you so much for this conversation and the opportunity to think about these questions, which are very important questions to think about. So thank you. I'm glad you're doing this. I'll be interested um, just to see how our different contexts do things differently. And I think that's important that each school is not a cookie cutter of the, of another. I think, I think we all um, have to appreciate that there is uniqueness in each institution and we have to pay attention to our different contexts, even though there are some bigger, um, you know, issues that we all need to be focusing on. Um, there are those things that are different and we need to celebrate that. Well, again, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, David. Thanks. Thank you. And take care. You have a, a great weekend. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Take good care. Bye-bye. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the world-